A few weeks ago, we started, again, the elephant in the family room. We talked about grief and loss as it relates to family. And sometimes it's literally we have lost somebody that they have passed on. And we are processing what it means to move on without them. And that can be incredibly challenging for people. Uh, There's also this sense in which we grieve in our families what we never had, whether it was a strong relationship with our parents or a strong relationship with a child, whatever that might mean for us, that there is a sense in which uh, we're grieving what we never had. Then we talked about the two-circle view of family, right? Jesus celebrated and honored his family of origin. And then he also pointed us somewhere else where there was this other circle, the family of God. And, uh, and so some of us are unlearning what we experienced in our original families by being in the family of God. And uh, so anyway, that's where we've been during the scripture talk. And then last week, we, we talked about what it means to be alone and, and the power of friendships. And uh, so today we're going to talk about something that I feel 20 or 25 minutes just won't do it justice, but at least it will hopefully get us started around a conversation about healing from family pain. I don't know any family that sets out to say, let's self-injure. You know, let's, let's hurt one another. Um, let's, let's just manage our circle in such a way that we break it and that we have, uh, you know, everybody carries some battle scars or battle wounds with them from being a part of the circle. Everybody sets out, every family sets out to say, how can we build a good and beautiful life and how can we build a good and beautiful family? It's just that life happens. And relationships, um, you know, scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, right? Sparks tend to fly, so one man or woman sharpens another. And sparks fly in relationships. People make um, good decisions and they make not so good decisions. And when people make decisions that we would be in the category of not so good, um, we never make decisions in a vacuum. Decisions of others impact us. And uh, as Pastor Kristen has mentioned, there are some decisions people have made that have left tremendously deep scars on us. And, and some not so much, but there, there are legitimate wounds from our families. And so we're going to explore that together today. Some of you have had a front row seat to observing addictions and experiencing abuse, neglect, abandonment, divorce. Words have been said that can never be taken back. And the wound on the heart is real and measurable. So wounds from family are significant because often it's the ones who are closest to us that when they injure us, they injure us most profoundly. And so uh, in just a moment, we're going to take a look at a character in the Bible and his family, and uh, we're going to stay with it across the marriage relationship, across the sibling relationship, and then across the parent-child relationship. Uh, but before we do that, our passage to ponder is taken from 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been looking at this verse over the last few weeks. The end of all things is near, Peter writes. And again, if it was near then, it's nearer now. And he says, in light of that, how should we live our lives? We should be alert and of sober mind so that we can pray, carry on an ongoing conversation with God. And then he says, above all, because the end is so close, he says, above all, love each other deeply. What do you do when the end is near? Love, love. You just keep loving. Love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, in the family relationship, we get an opportunity to do that. Love covers. Now, I, I, there does need to be a caveat to this. Depending on the nature of the sin. You know, love covers is not about sweeping things under the carpet. 
Sometimes things need to be addressed in a different way. But Peter's writing here about how we, you know, dance with each other. The music is being played and we're finding the rhythm. And unfortunately, we can be out of step with each other and we find our way onto somebody else's toes or feet. And it's like, this is life. We bump into each other. Peter says, hey, you know what? Love covers. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. And so that's really, really important for us in all relationships, but especially for family life. Love covers a multitude of sins, so relevant. So the Bible is a book written over 1,500 years, 40 authors, and it's a book about God primarily, and it's a book about people. And in fact, I like how the Bible Project authors have said that it is one unified story that leads us to Jesus. And it is a wonderful, beautiful book that stands the test of time. And in its pages, you will find imperfect characters, people who did get it right and people who didn't get it right, who said yes to the ways of God. And the life was played out with all sorts of beautiful backstory and light on the, on the journey ahead and other people who said no to his ways and some of the consequences that were part of that. The good news for us today is there are no perfect people in the Bible apart from God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but for us, we can find some um, capacity to relate to the characters because they are all flawed and imperfect just like we are. And so this morning, we're going to look at one family. Uh, again, if you're new to the Bible, new to church, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the patriarchs of Israel. Uh, there is a thread that moves through this family. God made a promise with Abraham that he was going to make him into a great nation. And this was a wild promise because at that point, he and his wife, Sarah, didn't have any kids and Sarah was barren and they were well along in years, the Bible says. So God gave Abram and Sarah a promise that from the natural point of view looked like absolute craziness. But it ended up being fulfilled because what God says, God does. This is the promise God made with Abraham. It was very, very significant. And then we have his son, Isaac. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob is who we want to spend some time talking about today. Now, again, if you read the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will find um, a thread of deception that moves through this family. If they had like a generational sin pattern that showed up. And you can actually find in your own family, there are trends that you can map through. Some people call it a genogram exercise, where you look up to three or four generations, and there are certain kind of patterns that get passed along. Well, this family was no different. They had their own pattern. Jacob, in fact, his name means deceiver. Isn't that interesting? Or supplanter. And, um, and so we're going to take a look today, very briefly, at marital wounds. We could spend a whole session or series on that. Marital wounds, sibling conflict, and parental hurt. Just a light conversation on a baptism Sunday. <laughs> All right, so ready to go? Here's the first one. The pain of marital wounds. Jacob and his wife, Leah. So marriage is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for nurture and connection, and it can also be a place of tremendous pain and disappointment. Uh, the nature of the marriage relationship is one of vulnerability, disclosure, attachment, and connection. And when the relationship is violated in some way, the pain can be incredibly severe and incredibly real and long-lasting. And this was the case for Leah. She longed, if you know the story, now this, 
It's a little bit of a different story from our 21st century Western worldview. Uh, there was another wife named Rachel. We're not going to get into that today. That's a whole other story. But one Old Testament scholar said this, and it's really applicable when a man takes two wives. It says here, just because it's recorded doesn't mean it's recommended. Okay, that's what I'm going to give you today. Just because it's recorded doesn't mean it's recommended. But Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. Now, he had strong affection for Rachel and less so for Leah. And we'll kind of leave it at that for now. But the pain of Leah's heart was real and significant, and the Bible records it. Uh, in fact, she craved love of her husband, and it was so close. It was within reach, but she could never access it. It was almost like she would go window shopping and see something she wanted, and she'd pull on the front door, and the door was locked. Or she'd go to the restaurant, and she'd pick up the menu, and she'd see exactly what she wanted to order, but the server never stopped by her table. She was so close to love, but so far away. Listen to this story. It's actually quite painful to read. Genesis 29, verses 32 to 35. Leah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Underline that. The Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Can you hear the pain? Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. And again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last, can you hear her heart? Now at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she, had, she, she named him Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, this is her fourth son. Listen to the change now. This time, I will praise the Lord. This time, I will praise the Lord. It's almost like she gave up on trying to earn her husband's affection and love. What a tough place to be for Leah. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. One important point in this story is that sex does not equal love. Jacob had sex with Leah multiple times, probably many more times before that. These are the times that are recorded when she conceived and gave birth to sons. But sex does not equal love. The other point of this story is this. God is the only one who is capable of loving us the way we need to be loved. At the end of all the effort and the striving to earn her husband's affection, she says, now I will praise the one true God. Have you found that to be true in your own life and in your own relationships? Human beings disappoint one another. We can spend a lot of energy enumerating the ways that people disappoint us. But we are also the disappointers. All of us don't love each other the way God loves us. And so the sooner we get our head and our heart around that idea, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments, and our expectations get somewhat adjusted to the fact that humans disappoint us, we will be better disappointed, or better positioned to step into relationships that disappoint, fueled by the love of God, knowing that our ultimate craving is only found in saying yes and receiving his kind of love.
And so Leah felt unloved. And uh, we don't know entirely why she may have felt unloved, but Rachel was the preferred spouse in this story. So we don't know if there was a handful of things around Jacob loving his work or loving his hobbies or loving his sports car or whatever it might have been. But compared to his love and affection for Rachel, Leah felt unloved. What is it that we might compare ourselves to in our marriage relationships? We have this beautiful opportunity when God gives a spouse or person to become a spouse of another He is entrusting us to care for one of his kids and to love them the way he loves us the best we can. But the wounds are real. So let's hold on to that for just a moment. We're going to come to a place where we can say, okay, I've got that wound now. What do I do with it? We're going to drive this home at the very end. I'll give you three action points as we move forward with this. But we're not just going to talk about the the pain from, from marriage relationships. We're going to talk about the pain of sibling conflict. The pain of sibling conflict, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had a brother, quite the story. In fact, they're one of the famous sibling stories in the Bible, probably one of the most famous ones, apart from Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain killed his brother Abel. This didn't end quite so tragic, but there was all sorts of sibling conflict that went on. Sibling rivalry and competition and the affection that we seek from a parent or parents is so real. Um, Listen to this. Right from the very very beginning, the biblical author wants us to understand this um, innate sibling conflict that was at play here. And I think maybe it's at play somewhat universally to some degree in every sibling relationship. Um, Genesis 25, beginning verse 26. After this, the writer says, well, what was the after this? After this was when the biblical writer was telling us that in the womb, these two boys were wrestling. They were doing hand-to-hand combat in the womb. Uh, This is what the biblical writer tells us. After this, his brother came out, and this is Jacob, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. (laughs) Not only are they hand-to-hand combat, he said, you're not getting away from me in life too, buddy. You and I went at it in here, we're going to go at it out there too. Grasping his heel. So he was named Jacob, which means supplanter or the grasper of the heel or deceiver. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them, to, to both boys. And the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, now this is the beginning of a problem right here. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Can you see the beginning of the problem? I like him, you like him, here we are. We've got a split right down the middle. Sibling rivalry, we've got ununited. There, there, there are, there's no unity in the marriage relationship as it relates to parenting. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he's, uh, he was called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Nice brother, eh? First, sell me your birthright. This is what uh, Esau says. Look, I'm about to die. Have, have, you ever, have you ever come in after a long day and say, I am starving? <laughs> I, it's like, no, David, you are not starving. I'm about to die, he says. Um, what good is the birthright to me? He says, I'm about to die. I'm so hungry. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore on oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. He was resuscitated pretty, pretty quickly, wasn't he? He was about to die. After he had what he was given, he was fine. So Esau despised his birthright, and I would argue he probably despised his brother. So what is his birthright? His birthright, because he was the firstborn son, but barely because Jacob had a hold of his heel. He had a double portion of the family estate. So he is literally saying, all right, I'm going to give up my firstborn status. You get the double portion, not me. And you got to understand oral tradition, oral culture. When people said things, their word was their bond. It was like a legal binding transaction. He sold his birthright for a pot of stew. Well, here's my question. Why didn't Jacob just give him some stew? He's about to die, he said. He was hungry. He makes him sell his birthright. This just gives us an idea of the relationship. Uh, Jacob's name means supplanter or deceiver, but that's not Jacob's true identity because later in the story, um, he wrestles with a God figure. There's a bit of mystery around the text, but he wrestles with a God figure and God changes his name. His name is no longer going to be Jacob. It's going to be Israel. And God says in the text, he says, um, your name will no longer be Jacob, Genesis 32, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. This is a story as you read through it of two nations in the womb, to be honest with you, Israel and Edom, and they're wrestling. And this is the way life unfolds. Nations, as we see played out, wrestle with each other. And nations are only comprised of individual people who happen to be within a geographical territory. And unfortunately, with um, geopolitical conflicts, we lose sight of that. But all of us, in a sense, are family. All of us trace our family line up to the first man, to the first woman. And what God had intended is that we would function like a family. And so what we see in the family of God or the body of Christ or the church is what God extracts from the world and says, see, this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to put my spirit in a special sense in that community, and that community will function as brothers and sisters, as a family. And the world around us is intended to have a front row seat to it to say, this is the way things were intended to be. Nations wrestling in the womb. Deception, leverage, a lack of generosity and empathy. Selling out, taking advantage, manipulation, taking sides. This is the human story. And so we have this microcosm called a family. And maybe for some of you, you had two or three or more siblings. And there was a sense in which who's going to compete to get mom's attention or dad's attention? Who's going to be the one who, who, who rises to the top of the pecking order within the sibling um, community? And, and all of that happens. And we have fallouts and we have disappointments and we have frustrations. And some of these, unfortunately, go on for years and sometimes for generations where siblings just stop talking to each other. And the scorecard gets pulled out and says, you owe me. Remember when. And every day goes by, another day, another week, another month, another year, and we miss opportunities to live like family. 
Now, Paul writes and says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That means you and I are responsible to do our part that we live at peace with everyone. But you and I know that relationships, it takes two to tangle, right? It takes two to tango as well. And so it's important that we have a partner if we're going to have a relationship. So for some, they've just said, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with you. You can't force yourself upon those people. You make yourself willing and able and available for, reunite, uh, for, for reconciliation. It doesn't always happen. But the sibling relationship holds out so much promise and opportunity for pain. All right, and also the pain of parental hurt. Uh, Jacob plays favorites. Uh, he, he, he was learning it from his father, I, Isaac, and his mother, Rebecca. Um, but Jacob plays favorites. Um, the greatest gift that a parent can give to a child is unconditional love. Uh, to hold the child in high esteem and to say that my, um, my love is for you always. We said to our daughters, my wife and I, early on when we had kids, we said it frequently too, it doesn't matter what you've ever done in this world, this will always be a safe place to land. You think about the worst thing that a human being can do, you can always come home. You can always tell mom, you can always tell dad, and we will be here for you. We will be in your corner until separated by death. When we had kids, we made a big commitment that we would love them the best we could and that we wouldn't hold out some sort of standard to say, if you achieve this, you get our love. That's not how God plays with love either. Remember this always. Take this with you the rest of your life, especially if this is the first time you've been at church and if you never, ever come back, remember this. It doesn't matter what I do, good or bad, I will never disqualify myself from God's love. God doesn't love me more when I get it right and love me less when I get it wrong. Take that with you. We grew up in families because our parents were imperfect and flawed, and so were our teachers and so are our employers. We get rewarded when we get it right, and sometimes we get put in a timeout or a penalty box when we get it wrong. God also disciplines the ones he loves, but his love will never ever fail you are in the crosshairs of god's love forever paul wrote and said what can separate us from the love of god i'll save you reading the three or four verses there absolutely nothing nothing can ever separate us from his love and so every parent i can't say this i can't say this uh, loud enough or frequently enough every parent gets the privilege to demonstrate the love of God to their kids. In fact, you will make it easier for your kids to believe that God is love if they experience your love. If they don't experience your kind of love and then we talk to them about how God is love, it's harder for them. You, you know that some who've had a really tough relationship with their dads, um, to call God Father can be really, really hard for them. Because when they do the word association, something's off. And so there are no perfect parents, no perfect mothers, no perfect fathers. And we need to learn, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, about the power of forgiveness. But we get this privilege. I want to make it easy for Bethany and Riley to call God Father because they had a reasonably good one. And because I say sorry, I don't say sorry. I, I do say sorry, actually. I say to my kids, Dad got it wrong. Uh, I, 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 I shouldn't have. Because they see that I don't even measure up to the perfect standard, they can offer themselves grace when they don't 
hit the bullseye with their life. And so I'm really, really passionate about this, that we ought to see our role as parents as being um, a reflection, like a, a right-angled mirror of the character of God to our kids. And, uh, and thanks be to God that his grace covers us when we don't always get it right. Um, here, here's what uh, Jacob didn't do. He played, he didn't do well. He played favorites. And um, let, me, let me read this passage. Uh, Genesis 37. Now Israel, which is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And the reason why is because Rachel gave birth to two boys, Joseph and Benjamin. Um, and the text says, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him, right? This is his robe of many colors. And then one more passage. Fast forward the story. Joseph has been sold out. He ends up through a whole series of events, being thrown in a pit. He ends up being promoted to the palace, but his brothers were the ones that sold him out. And the reason why they sold him out is there was this sort of sibling rivalry, this jealousy thing going on. It plays its way through the family. And he ends up being promoted to be like the right arm of Pharaoh. And there's a famine in the land. And so Jacob sends his 10 sons to go and get some food. <laughs> Listen to this story. Imagine being the 10 brothers of Joseph here. Listen to this. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, which is uh, Joseph's brother, um, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. The other 10 boys can go, but I want to keep Benjamin close here. You guys, you know what? I hope it works out for you, but I'm going to keep my son here. Could you imagine living in that kind of a family where the parents just seem to take sides? It happened. Grandparents are doing it. It's just all over the place, and it leaves wounds and pain. And... Okay, so here's what I've done. In the remaining five minutes or so that I have left, I have sketched out, and it's not an aha moment for all of us. We know this because we've lived out our story. There can be pain in the marriage relationship. There can be pain in the sibling relationship. And there can be pain in the, the child-parent uh, relationship as well. So here are three principles to live by, okay? You can apply it in all three of these contexts. Here it is. Expect to be hurt. <laughs> there it is. Expect to be hurt. We will all experience pain in this world and often from the ones closest to us. And expectations matter a great deal because if we don't go in expecting, when it happens, it's even that much more severe. And so here's the, the, the phrase. Remember that humans are frail and that they often fail. And we are numbered among them, all of us in this room. So our parents, our siblings, our children, they don't get it right all the time, and neither do we. So immediately we shift our expectations. They disappointed me. Of course they did. What did you expect? I can't believe they said that. Well, have you ever said something that resembles that? We all have something in common. We have blood racing through our veins. And this is why this community has gathered, and many of us have put our saving faith in Jesus, we don't pretend to be perfect. We actually say we don't get it right and we need help. And so every person on the planet needs some help, even those who are closest to us and most especially ourselves. Secondly, and this is big, the past still has power in the present when it is unaddressed. I say that one more time. The past still has power in the present when it is unaddressed. Um, it is a myth to believe that time heals all wounds. 
It is what we do with the time that helps us recover and helps us heal. I've been telling you, and you've known this for a while, that the last couple of months, almost heading towards three, I've had this back issue. And it's been a long time for me, and I am getting better, and it's really a good, good news story for me now. But I was a bit nervous early on because it really wasn't making progress, numbness in my foot and my leg and all that kind of stuff. But I've been going to physio twice a week, and it's what you do with the time that helps you heal and recover. And so wounds don't go away on their own. Time is a variable, but it's what we do with the time that helps us the most. What we name we can reclaim. We actually have to name things sometimes. This is what happened. This is how I feel. One good way of communicating with each other is this. I feel fill in the blank when you fill in the blank because fill in the blank. You might want to write that down. Put that down. That's for free today. Thousands of dollars spent on coursework to give you those Small little words. I feel blank when you blank because blank. That'll take you a long way when you communicate with each other. You're acknowledging your feelings and you're acknowledging the other person's contribution and you're giving them a rationale. rationale. You're giving them a reason. There's the why behind the what. Really, really important. And then here's the last one, so big. Forgiveness gives all of us a chance to walk free from what once disappointed and deeply wounded us. Forgiveness is not about the other person, it's about you. It's about you canceling debts. It's about you saying you don't owe me anymore. It's a financial term, the balance is zero. See, if we don't forgive, we run around this world saying, you still owe me. Time to pay up. And I'm going to get what you owe me by either giving you the silent treatment or walling you off or slandering you to other people or cutting you out of the family. That's how I'm going to get even. It's not a healthy way to get even. We see this play out in the Middle East. All the turmoil around the Arab community and the Jewish community, and it keeps going and going generation after generation. These are brothers. These are brothers. Trace their story all the way back to Isaac and Ishmael because you owe me. This is what you did to my grandparents. This is what you did to my parents. The biblical way is cancel debts. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How many times have you and I stumbled in this world not knowing what we're doing, even though we think we know exactly what we're doing? Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It always says, here's the promised land, and you say, oh, that looks great. Step over the, the, the boundary marker, and we find out that it's not the promised land at all. Every person who's going to be baptized today is saying, I know that I have missed the target with my life and that Jesus has canceled my debts. And then we, when we immerse in water and we celebrate their baptism, we throw a party, we celebrate, we applaud because another person has found the grace that's been held out for all of us. Now, I've said this many times before. It's crazy to say no to the forgiveness that's offered by God. Why would you ever do that? God says, I'm prepared to cancel your debts in Jesus. We say, no, no, I'd rather pay my own. Thank you very much. Anybody want to have their debts canceled in the room today? If you have a mortgage, would you like that? Interest rates rising, RBC says, no, you know, we've got enough money. We've got enough money. We don't need any more from you. 
We want you and your family to spend that money on some vacations. We want you to take a cruise. We want you to take an adventure somewhere far and wide. We, we want to empower you. We're going to cancel your debt. That's the gospel of Jesus. Canceling debts and then inviting us into a good and beautiful life. And it is awesome. So all these kids are coming in here today because they want a front row seat to water baptism. And um, so we are going to baptize um, six people today. And as I've already mentioned, so proud of you. And, um, and what we're actually going to do is baptize by immersion. And so what we do is we immerse, identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus gave us a, a commission where he said, um, go and make disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to whisper in people's ears in just a moment. We're going to say, upon confession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we will immerse them. Now, Scripture teaches baptism, what we would believe in, especially the book of Romans, by immersion because it's highly symbolic. It's identification with Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. But I love what Dallas Willard says. Dallas Willard says that baptism, according to Jesus, is not about getting people wet as much as it's about saturating them in the trifold name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so Christians run around the world surrounding people in the Trinitarian name. And we demonstrate the Trinitarian love of God by immersing them. Now, one person who's going to be baptized, the very first person, has a health challenge regarding immersion. And so uh, we do believe, again, that getting wet is important. But how wet does one have to be in order to be baptized? Well, you know what? We're just going to pour some water over someone's head, and that will be enough. That will be enough. I believe Jesus would say, hey, David, well done. That's enough. And the person is being baptized. What an act of faith and courage to get in the water in the first place. And uh, so are you ready to celebrate six baptisms? <laughs> and um, what we do around here, especially if you're new to church or maybe from another setting, is um, uh, this is a very holy moment. Uh, but holy moments deserve party atmospheres. And so we really think uh, if you were to applaud loud and shout and holler and all that good stuff to cheer on this person... I just believe that's kind of in step with the party that heaven throws every time a prodigal comes home. So uh, you can come outside of yourself a little bit and just sort of say enthusiastically, yeah, that's so good, awesome. I've heard people whistling and all this. It's all good. Not disrespectful. It's not disrespectful. It's beautiful, actually, to demonstrate that kind of love. So our worship team is going to sing, and we're going to sing songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. There'll be faith stories on the screen where each person will be introduced, just a little, a little um, uh, snapshot of their faith story, and, and then we'll baptize them, and we'll move through this probably uh, in seven or eight minutes, something like that, and, and then we'll have Pastor Kristen will come back, give us some direction on how we can access the food trucks, and, and the celebration will continue, okay? So uh, Pia and I are going to baptize, which means I have to get out of these shoes. And uh, so we'll just be a moment or so, and then we'll get started. And let's remain seated. And family, if you want to come up and you want to um, kind of take pictures and stuff, you're welcome to do that. And uh, we have photographers as well who are doing that. Um, and so I know that sometimes family likes to, to get a shot or two. So that's why we'll remain seated so you're able to capture a picture. Okay? So uh, let's sing songs of praise and thanksgiving, and then we'll, uh, we'll celebrate these baptisms. Mm -hmm. 